For those of you that don't know me, uh, uh, thank you, Joel. Uh, I can tell you a little about me. Um, husband of one wife. And uh, yes, it is a good thing. And uh, I have three teenage kids. Well, actually, one just turned 20, so I don't. I have two teenagers. And one I've kicked out of the house. And uh, no, I'm kidding. That was a joke. He's 20, he's on his own now. Tough, that's the way it is. Uh, I'm one of Joel's best friends. Uh, that is an, a claim that I love hanging on to, so because uh, I love that guy. And I pastored the downtown congregation. So um, we are all family, whether you know me or not. And it's really a privilege to be here. This is uh, kind of a teaching vision that Joel and I have had, that uh, we give each other breaks by once a month uh, teaching at both locations. So thank you guys for enduring that. And hopefully the Holy Spirit will use what we're doing to teach you and give you a little diversity. And um, But it's really a beautiful thing what you guys are doing here. The downtown congregation prays for you guys. Uh, we've heard of you guys. Uh, some of you are from down there. And uh, just exciting what's happening here. And just thrilled that so many of you that were a part of that one are here now bringing leadership and helping build community and a vision uh, to expand across the city. And it's our hope, as you guys probably know, because I think probably Joel talks about this, is that uh, in the years coming, there will be many congregations like this across the city. So you guys are blazing a trail. You're trailblazers. And uh, we've been talking about, since January, uh, downtown and here, why are we here? Why are we doing this? And so in January, we talked about our mission is to grasp God's vision for our lives. And uh, how do we grasp God's vision for our lives? And we said, well, the first thing we must understand is that God's vision is for us to grasp the gospel. So we spent several weeks talking about what is the gospel and what does it smell like and taste like. And, uh, and it's a lifelong journey, by the way. The gospel is not something that we easily grasp. It's often like wet soap. That just when you think you have it, it squirts out of your hands and uh, you realize you have to repent and reclaim it every day. And uh, then we talked about uh, another part of grasping God's vision for our lives is, is if you're a Christ follower, whether you like it or not, you are now part of a community. And so what does that look like for us to grasp on the outside what's already true about us, to make a living reality what's already true about us? And then we talked about uh, another thing that we must grasp to grasp God's vision for our lives is service. You've been gifted. I've been gifted. We should use our gifts. And today I want to talk to you about another aspect of service and uh, hopefully encourage and challenge you at the same time. And that's the, uh, the journey of mercy. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Luke uh, chapter 10, then um, let's go there. And my notes are all mixed up. So... Uh, Wow, okay, hang on. Give me two seconds to get this right, all right? Oh, that's the last page. No, that's the second to last page. And then that is, okay, then that is there, all right. Yeah, man, that's just way too complicated. All right. (laughs) Yesterday I ate at Jackson's. Did any of y'all eat at Jackson's in the village? Uh, it's my favorite place, but it's also my son, my teenage son's favorite place to eat. He loves the Pacifica, which is a tuna sandwich. 
uh, that just is, oh, it's just so good. It, but they serve it with this wasabi mayonnaise. Uh, do any of you like wasabi? Yeah, I, I honestly believe that wasabi is, is God's, it's like God decided to create a special force spice. Like, like this is the Navy SEAL of spices. And the reason I say it is because Navy SEALs, have you ever seen the commercial where, you know, it's the ocean, whoosh, footprints come in and then they're washed out, you know, Navy SEALs, you never see us, but we will take your life. And, uh, and wasabi's kind of like that because when I eat sushi, there, you know, I can dip my yummy goodness tuna roll in that sushi, uh, sauce that's soy and wasabi and, and there are times where you get a, you know, you can't blend the soy and the wasabi together perfectly. And so there are times there's chunks in there. And, uh, if you ever dipped it and you got a chunk and you just, it's just a little too much wasabi. And it, it kind of, you feel it coming. Have any of y'all experienced the sushi experience? You feel it kind of rising and then it gets in the nostrils and then the eyes begin to water. And just when you think you can't take it anymore, that your head is literally going to do a wasabi explosion. It just goes, you know, you're like, have you ever had that experience? And then the next sushi roll, you know, you dip it and you don't even taste the wasabi. It's like, because it's the ninja. You know, it's, it only strikes when it wants to. <laughs> anyway, what does that have to do with this morning? Um, absolutely nothing. No. I, I want you to know that this passage and this, this what we're going to talk about this morning is, is like the wasabi of the Holy Spirit. But it's not just the what happened to it. It is like the overdose. And this whole thing just drove me to my knees this week. Uh, in repentance and realizing that, man, there are things in my life that I have to realign them to the gospel of God's truth um, because my heart demands it when the Holy Spirit speaks to us uh, and speaks to me. So um, it's the issue of mercy. Let me, um, let me turn to where you already are. Uh, Luke chapter 10. This is the story of, of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Maybe um, you've read this before. If you've been around church uh, very long, you've heard it. That there was a lawyer that came to Jesus, and uh, this lawyer asked Jesus a question. He says, I want to know how to get into heaven. I want to know how to inherit eternal life. I mean, this is the question of all questions. What can I do so that when I die, I'm going to enter into that place that's good rather into the place that's bad? Well, Jesus knew that this guy was a lawyer, and he knew that he was a teacher, and he knew that he probably already knew what the answer should be. And so he throws it back into this lawyer's lap and asks him, you know, what do you, what do you think? What does the Bible say? He says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and everything. In other words, every part of your being should love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, great, go do it. And was content to walk away. Now, it should shock us that Jesus didn't hand him a pamphlet and say, ask me into your heart. <laughs> Why didn't he do that? Why would he say, if you want to get into heaven, it's all about love of God and your neighbor? Hmm. Well, the guy wanting to justify himself, that's what it says in there. In other words, wanting to understand how he could do something to get into heaven, asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? 
So let's start reading in verse 30. Jesus says, let me tell you a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, let's stop there. You understand that, that the Samaritans and the Jews could not be more different. And if we had all morning, we could talk about the history that put, pitted them against one another. But Jesus knew what he was doing when he said the priest failed, the Levite failed, and now he took the very people that the Jews were the most prejudiced against and said, now let me use him as an example to you about what I'm talking about. You can think about that another time. Write, write a blog about it. And, um, but it's important to note. He came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. If, if you can write in your Bible, uh, if God's given you the freedom to do that, underline that right there, those four words. Took pity on him, because it's the launching part of every mercy. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured, poured on oil and wine. It was so funny because we were laughing downtown this morning as we were talking about that. I can't remember the last time I poured wine on my wounds. There have been a lot of times where I've poured wine in my mouth because I thought I was wounded, which may be the same. I'm not sure. All right. Maybe that's another sermon, too. We'll let Joel handle that uh, issue because we know how much he hates wine. Then he put the man, he put the man on his own donkey took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. Now let's stop. Two silver coins was equivalent to two months or a month of stay in the inn. I mean, he went over, extravagantly over, and then he said, when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. In other words, I'm extravagant now, but I'm even more extravagant when I come back, whatever the need may be. And then Jesus turns to the lawyer and says, which of the three, these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? And listen to the lawyer. He said, the one who had mercy on him. Every time you hear the word ministries of mercy at Midtown, it's referring to this right here. The act of ministering to another person in the middle of their need, whatever that need may be. So there it is. 12 South, as you live out the gospel, the next time you come across somebody who's been beaten up, half naked, and you happen to have a donkey with you, put him on your donkey and take him to the nearest hotel and put him up for two months. I mean, it would be really easy for us to think that's what that means, isn't it? Uh, That when we come to experience extraordinary circumstances that we should get involved. But I think it means a little more than that. And let me try to press in. Here comes the wasabi. All right. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, Paul takes us a little deeper in this journey. He says, He who's been stealing must steal no longer. And he's talking about in this passage, he's been talking for the first 
four chapters about what Christ has done for us, and then when Christ did it for us, how it changed us, and how we're new people. And now he's talking for a couple of chapters about this beautiful explanation of what that should look like as it's working itself out in our lives. And he says, if you've been stealing, if that was a part of your life before you came into Christ, don't do that anymore. But you must work. Do something useful with your own hands that you may have something to share with those in need. Now, we could pass over that pretty easily, but I want us to stop there and understand that Paul is saying to all of us as believers, as Christ followers, that we work because we're trying to do something useful. We're using our gifts, but we also work, and equally as important as doing something useful, we work so that we have the ability to step into other people's needs. In other words, we make money so we can give it away. We make money so that we have the power to do something good for other people's lives. Have you ever tried to move a rock that was maybe bigger than you had the muscle capacity to move it? Uh, And you went through your house looking for a fulcrum. Impressed? And a large board or log so that you can put leverage on that big old monster rock because you know that with leverage you create more power than you have within yourself, right? And that's what Paul is saying. Your job is to give you leverage to be able to step into your community and the lives of the people around you to move injustice, to move poverty, to move people's woundedness, and to bring healing. See, the Good Samaritan did did it, didn't he? I mean, he used his money. He earned that money somehow, and he used it to step into this guy's brokenness and was able to do for this guy what he could not do for himself. But he was able to use the power that he was given long before he met the guy on the road as leverage now to be abundantly generous with this guy. Then in Galatians 4, we read another interesting passage where Paul says that we are to carry each other's burdens. Now let's stop there for a minute, because think about this. Carry each other's burdens. What does that mean to carry each other's burdens? You know, I like to think that carrying somebody else's burdens is helping somebody out. I like to think that way. Like, I like to think that that I can carry your burden, but in the back of my mind, I want to help you carry your burden without it ever becoming a burden to me. I mean, think about this. If you're coming into a hotel room, uh, into a hotel lobby, and you had a bunch of luggage, and it's burdensome to you, and you look over at me and you go, "Help!" You know, there's a part of me that wants to snap my fingers and turn to my teenage kids and go, "What are you doing? Help them!" I'm going to use my authority as their dad to help you. Uh, No problem. I love helping people out. God bless you, brother. You know, and my kids are burdened, you know. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying when I step into somebody else's burden, then it becomes a burden with me too. That I'm going to relieve weight off your shoulders by putting some of that weight onto my shoulders. And what does that mean about mercy? It means that if I'm giving mercy and it's not putting any burden upon me, if I'm not having to adjust my life in any way like you would adjust your body if you had new weight on you now, You know, if you're not having to adjust, then you don't understand mercy. 
You don't understand what it means. The Good Samaritan, what did he do? It's simple. When he put him on his donkey, guess who wasn't on the donkey? The Good Samaritan. He's hiking it now. And what about his plans? Where was he going? I'm sure he wasn't planning on uh, going to this inn and spending two months of wages on some guy who got beat up. It changed his plans. It made it inconvenient and became a burden. Now, you need to understand, for me personally, the wasabi shock of this this week was that I realized I'm incredibly selfish. And I have the capacity to create my whole world around me and nothing being a burden to me. I do. Like, my youngest drives now. Thank God. You know, that's what I think. You know, I don't have to haul her around everywhere now. She can drive. Because it was so inconvenient. When I was a kid, uh, I grew up with brothers, and my mom uh, understood this this simple truth about boys, is that we just we look for opportunities to love each other. <laughs> no, really, let me clean up your room. <laughs> no, that's just not true at all. You know, it's, uh, talk about wounds that needed lots of wine. I think my mom poured them somewhere. And we were not wealthy. And so we didn't have a lot of stuff, but whenever one, uh, when mom would get a candy bar and there was two of us and she would say share, uh, she knew that that's like throwing blood into a shark tank, like throwing it in the backseat of the car. No one's getting out of that backseat alive. All right. So she came up with rules that kind of navigated us through life, like rule with the candy bar. One divides it. And the other what? Chooses it. Some of you have been mothers. I understand. Because she knew that the one breaking it realized that the other one's going to choose one. And we both knew as brothers that selfishness was the guiding light to our lives. All right? And if there was some way that I could figure out to get more and he could get less, not only would I do that, but I would do it with glory, you know? And so she had this little rule because she knew that that she didn't have to teach us selfishness. She didn't have to teach us, I'm going to get my own. We were born with it. We came from the factory with it. And what she was trying to do was work against the natural tendencies of her boys to teach them how to share. It didn't work because even when we were eating it, we were saying, are you going to eat all that? <clears throat> yeah, I spit on that end. Let here. Take yours. Did you ever do that? Right, girls, I'm sorry. I say that because I'm going to tell you the wasabi for me to say to you to adjust your lives to carry the burdens of other people is going to, is going to slap you in the face of your selfishness. Is going to require a part of you that lives for you and your comfort alone to die to that. And let me just say, here's some hard passages. Here it comes. Here's some more wasabi for you. In Isaiah chapter 1, God is coming to his own nation, his chosen people, his treasured possession, and he is challenging them because they've rebelled against him. And listen what he says to them in chapter 1, verse 16. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do what is right. And what is the right? Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. 
defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. You know, you want to know what the wounded person on the side of the road looks like in our culture? Bingo. What does it look like for us to have our donkey? Leverage our jobs to know that we are now in positions to give. That our burdens are not ours alone and your burden is not yours alone, that we will share one another's burdens. Let's go even further. Have you heard of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah? It was a city that was so sinful that God sent his fire. It is no more, you know. And Ezekiel, Ezekiel says this to his people. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. What was the sin? She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. That was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm out of sync. All right. Help me, Holy Spirit. Let me bring it into Jesus' world. That was the Old Testament. Listen to what Jesus says. Because Jesus is talking now, and this should shock us. It should it should slap us. Because Jesus is standing about the talking about the throne of God. And as we stand before the throne of God, God is going to separate us. And on one side, he's going to say, here are my sheep, come into my kingdom, and here are my goats, here are the goats, depart from me, I never knew you. And what does he use to separate them? Is it, well, I've excited, accepted Jesus into my heart, or, you know, I went to church, or I was a part of a small group? Listen to this. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And I needed clothes, and you clothed me. And I was sick, and you looked after me. And I was in prison, and you came and visited me. And what did they say to him? Okay, Jesus, this is really cool that we're sheep. And this is awesome that you're letting us in. Because I smell a lot like a goat right now. So this is cool. But when did we ever see you hungry, thirsty, naked, stranger? When? And Jesus said, remember, he's talking about salvation here. I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Are you sensing the wasabi yet? Are you kidding me? I thought we were saved by grace alone, by what Christ did on the cross. Well, Jesus, well, James said, you know, faith without deeds is dead. It was Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the theology that's the bedrock of what we teach here, said that, We are saved by faith alone, but guess what? Faith is never alone. In other words, what he's saying when Jesus was telling the story of the Good Samaritan, what he was trying to say to the lawyer is, you're the man on the side of the road. He's saying, you're the one that's been beaten up by life. You're the one that's been robbed of life. You're the one that's half dead. You're the one that needs somebody to do something for you that you can't do for yourself. And I'm the Good Samaritan. That's what Jesus was saying. See, the gospel is is that Christ came. 
He gave up everything that was his. He gave up his kingdom. He took on flesh. He came into this world and gave up his life so that we could have life. He went to the cross and he took all our sins upon him. And when he took all our sins upon him, he took our sins away. But he became sin. And then he did something remarkable that when he came down from the cross, when he paid the penalty on the cross, when he said, it is finished, he drank the entire cup of the wrath of God for every sin I ever committed. This is radical stuff. I mean, this is that means that God has no more wrath for me. I'm in Christ. No more wrath. Jesus drank it all. He drank it all. And when he rose again from the dead, this is powerful. He now said, it's better for me to leave because now the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he's coming with gifts and power. This is outrageous because now that Christ has paid for my sins, Galatians 2.20 is true. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. We are new creations. We have been changed. The old is gone. The new has come. Have any of y'all ever seen the movie The Night of the Living Dead? None of you? Come on. That is so sad. We should just stop the service right now and show it. Because these people become zombies, you know, and they're like, you know, they walk all funny, you know, and and they have one insatiable desire. Do you know what that is? Come on, somebody, please. Brains, yes. We don't understand why. We don't know. We cannot, you know, understand the scientific significance of zombies' hunger for brains. But in the movie, uh, all the characters in the movie, as well as those that are watching the movie, just accept it as a living reality. That when zombies become zombies, they are no longer themselves. They become brain Hungry, obsessed, brain-sucking creatures that are driven by the odor of brains. They're changed forever. They don't do accounting anymore. They don't drive their cars, you know. They don't put jam on their toast in the morning, you know. They don't oversleep. They don't set their alarm. It's brains, brains, you know, brains. Okay, it's the best illustration I could come up with, all right? It was late last night. When we become Christians, something radically changes. We become obsessed with mercy. We become obsessed with living on the surface what has already transpired in the inside of me. That I am the one that has received mercy, and so I'm giving mercy. But unlike the zombie movie, when I become a Christian, I don't become, you know, in the zombie movie, you're normal, 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 zombie, you're weird, all right? And the, in the kingdom of darkness, when I'm in the kingdom of darkness, I am more unlike what I was created to be than I will ever be. But when I am birthed into the kingdom of light, when I am been made a new creation, God doesn't change me into some mindless, different weird person it is now the first step into the reality of what god created me to be my true self is now coming to the surface for the glory of god so i don't give up me i find me because i can't know me unless i know him and i can't know him unless i first begin to understand me especially my need for mercy so mercy 
get this, this is big. Mercy is the visible fruit that I belong to the Lord. If mercy is not a part of my life, if it's not something I'm eager to express and to give, if I'm not generous and looking for opportunities to use what God's given me as leverage to care for those that are less fortunate, then I should ask myself legitimately, do I belong to the Lord? I mean, Jesus said it. You've heard the story of that Jesus told about the, the servant who owed his master a million dollars. And so the master called him and said, hey, hey, pay up, man. I need the cash. And he falls on his knees and he says, please, master, please, I, I don't have the money. Have mercy on me. And the master said, okay, okay, I'm going to forgive you. You owe a ton of money, but I'm going to show you mercy. And so the guy leaves and he's high-fiving all his buddies, you know, and they, let's do a party. I thought you didn't have any money. Forget that. You know, wine on the wounds, baby. And so they're throwing a party and he spots this guy that owes him a couple bucks. And what does he do? He goes over and he grabs him and says, pay me up. And the guy pleads with him the exact words, mercy, have mercy on me. And he says, no mercy for you. No mercy. And he throws him into prison. When the master hears it, he has that guy brought to him. He said, what have you done, you wicked servant? Why did he say that? Because he says, you don't understand the mercy that's been given to you if you have no mercy to give to others. Why would Jesus tell us that? Because the first step in becoming a merciful person is bathing in the riches and the overflow and the waterfall of God's mercy for you. And if you're not a merciful, generous person, you have a very small view of God's mercy and generosity to you. Oh, let me explain. Second Corinthians chapter 9. And God is able, this is he's talking about his family here, to make all a grace abound to you. So that you, so that in all things at all times, now listen to this, because I couldn't make this stuff up. I mean, this is really in the Bible. What I'm about to read to you. Having, he's, let me start all over. And God is able to make all a grace abound to you. We can talk about that for hours. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God is saying you're in the family now. And because you're in the family, everything you need for life and godliness I'll give you. Abundantly. Um, have any of you ever been to Otter Creek Church of Christ? They are like mercy, like, I, I, don't, even, I don't even have a good word for them. They just are crazy about it. And they do this big winter coat giveaway every year. And it's funny because they, you know, they have hundreds and hundreds of coats and you can just get them for free. You just go if you need a coat, stand in line, you go in and people are like bringing just like armfuls of coats up to the counter, you know. And the person's not not ringing anything up. They're just saying, let me wrap that up. Free. And it's funny because uh, you see the same thing happen when that guy comes up there, you know, and he needs a coat for every 21 of his children. And he puts them up there and he's got an abundant need. And they say, we can meet that beyond your imagination. He looks to the woman behind the counter and he goes, thank you. And she does something that is outrageous. I mean, guys, this is just wasabi kind of in your nostrils, wake up, water your eyes kind of thinking. She says, you're welcome. As if the coats were hers. (laughs) 
They weren't hers to give away. But she gave them freely, didn't she? What God has given us is not ours. So when we give it and say, you are welcome, we grin because we know all that we have has been given by him. It was never ours anyway. It's my phone. (laughs) It's my wasabi-loving son going, Dad, where are you? Let's go eat lunch. Let me wrap it up with this. Because this is important. Because here's where it gets serious, and we're about to come to the table. If you're like me, um, it shocks you when you hear some of this stuff. And you say, you know what, I, I'm not obsessed with mercy for others. I, I don't want to make other people's burdens my burdens. I'm more selfish than probably anybody in this room realizes, and I'm probably more selfish than I ever want myself to realize either. That I've created these idols that I really, really, really believe that it's not God that gives me what I need, it's me that gives me what I need. And it's my job, and it's my money, and I protect it as if it's my life. So generosity for me is the furthest thing from my mind. And so we adopt these broken little ideas like, let's give 10% to the church. Because then I can bargain with God. God, I gave you your 10%. Now keep your hands off the rest of my stuff. But what do we hear in the New Testament? Everything belongs to the Lord. Is it wrong to have a lot? No way. Are you kidding me? I hope all of you get rich beyond your wildest dreams. I really do. And take me on vacation with you. All right? But I also hope that as God increases your options, because isn't that what wealth does? It creates, it creates more options for you. You can do more. You can vacation in more places. You can eat in more restaurants. You can live in more neighborhoods because you have options now that you would also use the leverage of those options to create more options for others too. So if you're like me, the first thing we need to do is just repent. And when we come to this table, God, I have forgotten the depths in which you've given me mercy. Forgive me. I've got such a small view of my life, a small view of my resources. When I understand that you have given me the riches and the kingdom and the treasures of heaven. That's the first place. Then the second place that I think we need to go is I just want to really challenge you to Practice mercy today where it's easy. And what I mean by that is just start with the people that are closest to you. What would it look like for you to give mercy to them? Would it mean a kind word? Would it mean turning off the television and just saying, hey, can we go for a walk because I want to listen to you today? Would it mean interrupting your normal schedule to give them something, maybe a nap, So you'll do the laundry? Or maybe it's something as heavy as saying, I forgive you. Because isn't forgiveness the greatest mercy gift we can give to somebody? Because what cost us more than forgiving another person? You've wounded me. I will accept the wound. And I'll wear the price of that wound. And in exchange, I will give you forgiveness. Isn't that powerful? Start where it's easy. And then I want to ask you to second in that process is to ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes. Where around you does he want to use you as a hand and a foot of Christ? Maybe it's your neighbor who needs their grass mowed. 
or they need help with utilities this month. Everybody knows the economy's gone nuts. People have lost jobs. But if you ask God to open your eyes to see the needs of others, trust me, it's going to be a crazy, wild, exciting ride as you seek God's face on how to help people carry those burdens. And then finally, God's also called us collectively to be an agent of mercy. Together as a community, we see it all throughout uh, the Gospels. When Paul and Peter had their conflict in Galatians, you remember Paul said, I'll take the Gentiles, and Peter said, I'll take the Jews. And, uh, you know, you take your little part of the world, I'll take the rest of the world. Here's what they agreed on before they left. Remember this? They said, one thing we're going to agree on, because they agreed on the gospel, but the one thing, we will not forget the poor. And they collectively said, together we will care for the poor. So collectively, I just want to let you know, uh, 12 South Midtown, this morning, downtown, we installed uh, a diaconate. And what that is, is there are offices in the church that God has set up, offices of word and offices of deed. Officers of word are elders who are guarding the integrity of the truth that is taught here, shepherding the flock and all truth. And our diaconate are those that have been commissioned to lead us as a community into this city and into the world to be agents of mercy. Um, and so I just want to encourage you to keep your ears to the ground as we talk collectively as a one body, multiple congregations. How does God want to use our forces leverage here in the city? Because God is moving and God is working and we want to be a part of that. So I encourage you that we show mercy because we are those that have been given mercy. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that we align our lives to the work of God in the world that we live in. Yeah? Smell that wasabi? It's going to mess us up, isn't it? So much for a restful Sunday. This could really wreck it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you're not taking anything away from us when you call us to be merciful. And Lord, I thank you that you're not being mean or harsh or cruel when you tell us to care for the poor. That you're calling us to the greater things. That you're lifting our eyes off the pettiness of ourselves and into the world of experiencing your grace flowing through us to others. I thank you, Father, that it's you that says uh, that as we take on your burden, it is light. And Lord, as we take on the burden of our friends, our neighbors, even those in this room and in this city, Lord, give us a joy as we see your kingdom moving forward. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.